So whether we like it or not, the pandemic has made some lasting impact on the future of work, which many argue that some form of remote work is here to stay. Now, in this episode, my guest, Anu Bardawaj, will go deep into this topic of growing and scaling a distributed product team. We'll talk strategies and tactics on how you go about doing it, setting up the culture, asynchronous communication, and much more. Now, Anu is the VP of product at Atlassian, the company that builds collaboration software for teams. Anu runs the enterprise cloud and data center business based out of California. And throughout 17 years in the tech industry, Anu has run product lines like Jira, Confluence, and Visual Studio Team Systems while she was at Microsoft. Uh, Anu also actually serves as a chair of Atlassian Foundation. Uh, she's a philanthropic organization focused on global education for underprivileged youth. So get ready, guys, for a very interesting and timely chat with my guest, Anu Badraj, on how to grow and scale a distributed product team. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Shirazian, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Anu, welcome to PM Hub. Thank you, Cyrus. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. 100%. Now, I'm very excited. It's 2021, January of 2021, and, you know, we are living in a kind of like a remote setup, I'd say. Uh, it's still the pandemic's going on all over the place. And I think for product people, probably this topic around, you know, distributed product teams and how you go about growing and scaling it is a really hot topic. So I'm really excited to chat with you about this today. But, you know, as, as you know, we all have different journeys, in, journeys into product. And I'm just curious to know how, how was your journey like into product and how, how did you get into it? I'm sure. Yeah, I've had a bit of a circuitous route in product. Um, so back in 2003, when I was in school, I got recruited straight out of school into Microsoft. And the first job I had there at Microsoft was um, as an engineer building video games on the .NET SDK. I was an avid gamer even then. And so when Microsoft offered me the job, I was I couldn't believe it. I was like, I'm going to do this job for free. I can't believe you're actually going to pay me for this. <laughs> uh, so that was a great start. And um, as I took on that job, like any good gamer, I thought I wanted to advance in my proficiency of being an engineer. Just like when you play a game, you want to make sure you get to the next level soon, sooner. Mm -hmm. So I thought about, okay, what's the point of this game, uh, being at work at Microsoft? In school, it was about getting good scores and advancing to the next grade. But after I took a job, I started thinking, what's the point of this game? How, how do you make progress here? And as an engineer, I thought writing lots of code, learning lots of different technologies, being able to look into the source code of Windows, um, learning operating systems, that was really the point of the game. And over time, I noticed, um, as a developer, I noticed that there were a bunch of QA engineers that were having a lot more fun. They were building their own test automation and filing patents for innovation. And so I thought, hey, that looks like a lot more fun. Let me switch there. Because it feels like filing patents and inventing new technology, that's really the point of the game. That's how you advance to the next level. Mm -hmm. I did that for a while, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, writing patent docs is definitely not fun, as anybody who has filed for patents would tell you. 
Yeah. But um, there's a lot of excitement in inventing new things. But it still seemed somewhat arbitrary. So a few years into my career, I met a customer of TeamBuild. Uh, TeamBuild was one of the products that uh, I worked on at Microsoft. And this is uh, basically a tool that allows you to compile your source code, deploy the binaries into production. So it was kind of like a CI/CD pipeline. Right. And this guy, when I met him, he was a developer. He told me how our product saved him a couple of hours each day. And he was so excited about the fact that our product was saving him time. He said, look, I can go home early and play with my kids before they go to sleep. This product's really been a godsend. Mm -hmm. And at that point of time, I realized how touched I was. At that point of time, I realized, oh, this is really the point of the game. It's to build things that matter to our customers. Whether I wrote code, built patentable technology, or published blog posts, or went to customer conferences, it really didn't matter how. The point of the entire thing was it had to impact our customers' lives in a good way. So that was really my aha moment. It was also the foundation for a lifelong, relentless focus on serving customers and making sure that products I build have a positive impact on their lives. So with that, with that aha moment, the most natural fit for me was to be a product manager, uh, being saved in um, understanding customer need and really shaping the solutions for customer pain. So I found my way into the product management role through trying to ascertain what really mattered or what the point of the game was. And since then, I've built many products and product teams across Microsoft and Atlassian. Very cool. Very cool. What, what a cool journey. And, you know, uh, I love what you, when, when you shared about the activation moment, the aha moment about when you realize you really care a lot more about the why than the actual what. And that's actually, I think that's the aha moment a lot of uh, product folks that I've been hearing. So, so it's really cool to hear that you had a similar path as well from that sense. Uh, now, you, yeah, so cool. So you're a VP uh, product at Atlassian, and I'm curious to know how remote was your team pre-pandemic and how has the pandemic kind of shaped it overall, especially your hiring process since? Um, yes, so I work for Atlassian since the last seven years, and I run a PM team now of about uh, over 100 product managers. Um, Atlassian has always been a distributed company. So we have um, 17 different offices across multiple time zones. Uh, we are headquartered in Australia. So our founders uh, built this company out of Australia, but we have developers and dev centers in India, Poland, US West Coast, US East Coast, Amsterdam, a bunch of different places. Plus, of course, sales and support teams in many more offices around the world. Um, one of the curious things about being a high growth company in Australia is the tech industry is not as big as the US or India. So we naturally evolved to be a distributed company because of the demands of scale. And some of our acquisitions like Trello were already fully remote. So uh, uh, compared to most companies on average, we were already a very distributed company before COVID hit. Then, since COVID, it's uh, definitely um, accelerated our distribution a lot more. So just as a matter of numbers, since March 2020, we've recruited over a thousand employees. Wow. Um, so we've had to tweak our interview process. 
um, set up new onboarding uh, processes and practices and company rhythms, we've had to change pretty significantly. Um, but I'm pretty pleased with how we have managed to do all this without slowing down uh, overall or causing uh, too much pain for our new employees that uh, are just joining Atlassian. This is uh, this is very impressive, and I think yeah, the fact that you mentioned the uh, the company was started out of Australia, kind of like they had to expand globally for the sake of the size and the location. It's very interesting at how it came to be, and definitely now today, you know, it helped a lot uh, in in the sense of like going remote. So that's that's awesome to hear. And I'm like, you definitely seem to be the right person to talk with when it comes to, uh, I guess, growing and scaling, uh, you know, distributed team, especially around products. So I'm excited to get into this topic further with you. Uh, now, I'm also curious to know before we dive a bit deeper, like, do you see this whole uh, distributed setup uh, kind of how, how do you see it evolve post pandemic? Do you think it's here to stay it becomes a trend? Um, yes, from a perspective of whether this is here to stay, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? We hear a lot of arguments about uh, whether this is temporary, is it going to be hybrid, a mix of the two things. Um, while it's hard to make uh, predictions about how long this, uh, this pattern will uh, remain, uh, one thing that we strongly believe in at Atlassian as a company is that um, uh, digital work, being digital first and fully distributed, is definitely a long-term trend. Um, in general, we believe that a lot of digital work that happens today can effectively be done in a fully distributed and remote-friendly way. We've seen this work in the past, so there is evidence that this works well. And remote work was already gaining popularity, um, and the pandemic has only accelerated that process. So specifically in terms of how we are dealing with the uh, fully distributed uh, philosophy, we already announced at Atlassian late last year that we will switch to a fully distributed model. This means that employees have a choice of whether to go to an office or work from home, even after the pandemic ends. And uh, this is a big step for us as a company, but it's one that we believe will unleash more productivity and innovation from our teams in the long run. Um, so unlike other companies that are doing a hybrid model, our central thesis is that employees are going to work digital first or distributed first, meaning regardless of where you are, whether you're working from an office or from home or from a cafe, you will really engage in norms that support re remote working and are consistent across all environments that you work from. Yeah, no, that's very interesting, and especially the point you mentioned about uh, the long-term productivity and innovation uh, for, for remote distributed teams. I'm curious to, if you could elaborate a bit more on this, because from what I've been hearing and reading, uh, you know, it, it seems to be like, especially when it comes to, you know, the, the core product work, when it comes to discovery work, uh, you always hear like, you know, like from, from like, you know, uh, out, from like, you know, let's, let's say uh, some of the thought leaders out there when they talk about it, they all say, you know, what you need to have the trio, the product manager, product designer, and engineers kind of like co-located in the same place. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts when, when you talk about uh, the long-term productivity for, for distributed teams. Um, yes, definitely. Um, so in terms of um, distributed teams versus remote teams, just a nuance to say, 
uh, you can have distributed teams without them working remotely. So for instance, when I was working at Microsoft, we used to have different development centers and I worked out of the India Dev Center for quite a few years. Uh, so it was a distributed team. We had full stack teams located in different geographic locations and we would all collectively work on a product line. Uh, it didn't have to be remote though. It, it was So everyone used to come to an office and work out of a shared workspace. Uh, adding remote to a distributed team setting introduces another nuance in that even if your team is all located in one city in San Francisco, if everyone's working from their homes or from different physical locations, it means that your work is going to be entirely digital. It's going to be uh, performed in a remote first way. Um, so distributed teams have some obvious benefits that we've seen in the tech industry for many, many years, right? With multiple offices comes scale and ease and access of talent. So that's that's an easy one to explain why that leads to better scalable results. Mm -hmm. But working remotely also uh, really helps up our game in terms of the kind of work we can do and how effectively we can do. Uh, so uh, a few examples from uh, my experience as to uh, why we believe that this really helps make work more productive. Um, some of the uh, obvious benefits are really the, we, we have better access to talent. Not everybody resides in the same location or not everybody is able to come to a workplace five days a week. So offering flexible work hours, um, having uh, more and more people be able to do different kinds of jobs despite constraints on their physical work hours is a great way to bring more people uh, a diverse set of talent, a diverse uh, set of skill sets into your team. And also the ability to manage your life better, you want to go on an afternoon run or you want to take Fridays off and work Saturdays, uh, having the ability to blend your life requirements and work requirements better results overall in just happier employees and therefore more productive workers. So we recently did a survey of uh, uh, thousands of remote workers uh, at Atlassian and we found that um, some of the common worries that we hear uh, around remote teams can be mitigated by certain tactics uh, typical patterns we hear around lack of uh, social connection and belongingness. But the pro of it, the advantage of it is really that it attracts a more diverse set of people because it removes a lot of uh, common inequities like access to a particular city, um, uh, time zone constraints, working hour constraints. And also it really puts people on the equal footing. Uh, for instance, we have this tactic at Atlassian where even if there are three people working out of the same workplace in the same physical office and you have another person dialed in remotely, we go to different offices and all four people dial in into the Zoom meeting from four different places. Uh, what happens as a result of that is the one person that's working remotely doesn't feel like a satellite worker while the other three get together and talk amongst each other and eventually the remote worker feels isolated. Dialing in from different offices makes like, make, makes the situation feel like, hey, all four people are on the same footing. So it's really easy to work together and feel like you're part of an equitable system.
Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Thanks for elaborating on that. It actually make, make, makes a lot of sense, uh, especially when they say quality of life and better access to talent. Those are the really good points. Now, I'm curious to know, like, the, in terms of, like, you know, the challenging parts of the product development life cycle, you know, what are what is it you would say, like, probably the most challenging part of it for, for a distributed team? Um, so if you think about product development lifecycle as, um, let's say, forming, storming, norming, performing, that's a common uh, product development lifecycle that's used. Uh, during the formation of a team, creating interpersonal connections and social capital is hard. Um, also, disseminating culture is hard when it's a fully remote setup. So when you say distributed, I, I'm uh, assuming this is also a remote. Yes. Yeah. Um, so doing that, uh, forming a team when you aren't really meeting the other person, when you really can't feel their vibe, um, meeting them face to face is a different kind of challenge. So you have to be more intentional and make more of an effort to create that kind of uh, interpersonal connection. So some uh, some of the tactics that we use to help with this is uh, having uh, Friday happy hour or uh, creating a casual lunch um, kind of Zoom meeting or uh, just a, a, a casual virtual setting where you can drop in and drop out it, meant to simulate more like a hallway, uh, hallway hall uh, water cooler conversation or we typically in our glassing offices every Friday evenings we have social gatherings and People and they work remotely miss it, so we have remote versions of the same thing. It's not quite the same as face-to-face, -face, but it at least offers a chance. It offers a space and setting to help with formation of those teams. In the second phase of storming, um, creative tasks like brainstorming and uh, initially doing creative work, which requires uh, standing around a whiteboard, those things are hard. Uh, so in those cases, digital workboards, whiteboards and workboards help. We use many of these uh, tools like Miro, Mural, um, ourselves uh, um, when we work on remote teams. And finally, norming is easier once there is an established uh, rhythm on the team and people know each other, they understand practices. And adapting to async practices is really hard. So a good forcing function um, of remote teams is that you tend to look at uh, status reporting meetings and call them uh, because they just creep in over time and you evaluate all recurring meetings and shifting to an asynchronous work culture requires an intentional shift. But having done that, the product development lifecycle tends to feel a lot more smooth for remote teams. Yeah, no, that's that's those are really really good points you brought up, and I'm I'm curious to know on the last point you mentioned about going asynchronous. That's such a good point, and I actually I like, feel it myself in my role. Like you know, I see like, I see get bombarded by Slack messages or you know from your colleagues and everything else. So from that perspective, like, are you guys? You know, I'm curious to know what what kind of tools or tactics you're leveraging to switch to a more asynchronous kind of like called uh, culture, if you will. Yeah, that's a great question. It's one that we've evolved over time, and it can feel uh, somewhat artificial if you're used to being in an office, in a physical workspace surrounded by people. Um, so a few things that we do in terms of being more 
asynchronous in the nature of how we do work. Uh, we've suspended, we've pretty much um, suspended all of our uh, uh, recurring status update kind of meetings because they're just not high value for people to get together and synchronously perform. Um, we've uh, made sure that there is a concept of halos, which is when you're in a remote team, there is an overlap of about three to four hours uh, during your working hours, whatever you've designated as your working hours for the day. We make sure that the team collectively has three to four hours synchronously during a day. So any uh, high bandwidth activities like brainstorming on new requirements that came in from customers or debugging an issue that uh, you want to do across a pair of developers or a group of people. Uh, those are high value activities that we schedule during that synchronous time. Practically everything else is done asynchronously. Um, so written communication is a lot more uh, prevalent. Uh, people tend to read um, documents, read pages, we use Confluence internally. Uh, updates that others have written in their free time. And we post uh, a lot more videos now rather than have people come into all hands or uh, listen to an update that the exec provides across the org. We tend to post more of videos so they can consume it while maybe they're going on a run, they can hear it, uh, or they can watch it uh, while they're um, having a snack, so people can schedule that based on their workday. So a lot of these uh, practices, uh, you really have to think and put in place uh, and get used to them. Once you get used to them, it feels very natural. Like what you hear so far, make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself, and I'm thankful for your support. Now let's head back to the show. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for sharing those. Now, moving on to like some of the more tactics and strategy part, like I'm curious to know, like when it comes to like growing a distributed team and on the product side, what's the most overlooked that you've noticed? Um, so for distributed teams, um, some basics, but uh, things that are easy to overlook is when you're creating geographically distributed uh, product teams, it's important um, to make sure that um, you're creating the extended um, team in a place where uh, there is um, access to scaled talent, where there are, if you're recruiting for engineers, you want to make sure that there's enough um, talent pool of skilled technical workers in that particular location. Uh, what does the competition look like in local markets? And one very simple basic thing is to make sure that if you're operating in a predominantly English speaking company, you want to make sure that um, the new team you create doesn't end up with a language barrier. So whether it's English or Mandarin or whatever your uh, chosen language across the company is, uh, which reminds me of uh, one experience we had uh, at Atlassian uh, when we were scaling our teams was we set up a development center in Vietnam, which ultimately did not work very well for us because um, the rate at which we were recruiting, there just wasn't uh, a technical talent pool big enough in the city we had chosen in Vietnam. And we overlooked 
uh, rather underestimated how hard it was going to be for um, the folks that we hired in that dev center to adapt to an English speaking environment. So we got English tutors um, to help out places uh, where uh, folks were feeling the gap, but that ultimately ended up being a really uh, big functional gap. So we eventually had to pull out of there. That's very interesting, and you know, actually, like it's it only comes from after after you go 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 over and actually try to uh, try it out. But that's such a good point. Uh, now, I guess on this strategy side, I'm curious to know, Anu, like overall, how do you strategize? You know, when you want to go about and you know grow and scale your distributed team. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, Cyrus, uh, the point about co-locating, my personal experience has been when, you, uh, when I've had to strategize uh, expanding a distributed team, I've always erred on the side of co-locating product people and engineers. Uh, it's a pattern that uh, I have personally found to be important, especially on teams um, that are starting up and that are composed more of um, people with not that much tenure or that much experience. It's less uh, important for folks that have worked with each other for a long while, found their rhythm, have already shared context and goals. But for a fresh team, it's, um, it's best when the people who are discovering customer problems or defining the why are also um, easily accessible to the folks that are defining the how, uh, in this case, PMs and engineers. And when I say co-located, again, they don't have to necessarily be in the same physical workspace, but they do have to share a significant chunk of overlapping working time. For instance, when I joined Atlassian, uh, for Jira, uh, uh, at the time, all of our Jira team was uh, located in Sydney. Uh, so I needed all the PMs to really be in Sydney, and I remember having to go uh, do a couple of round-the-world trips to recruit PMs all over the world and convince them to move to Australia, where our headquarters was, uh, to join Jira. And uh, I built a team of 20 PMs, and it it was totally worth it to make sure that everyone was co-located because we were just kicking off the team, and that was the time when it was important that we all shared context. Uh, and a couple of other uh, things that contribute to strategizing uh, around distributed teams are sometimes you do acquisitions where you end up with CEOs who typically wear a PM hat uh, when they come in. Uh, they end up in one location and the dev team is elsewhere or with a satellite team kind of set up. And that tends to be okay, uh, typically in the short run, depending on how your integration plan pans out. The key thing is to is that it's important to keep everyone aligned. In a distributed team, as you scale, everyone really needs to grok how they contribute to the global success of the company because good companies cascade goals, but great companies cascade purpose. And this is crucial when building a distributed team. Yeah, no, I love what you just mentioned. And uh, good companies cascade goals, great companies cascade purpose. Such a good point, such a good point. Uh, very cool. So when it comes to like, you know, individual contributors and a distributed team, what, what, what unique skills do you look for? Um, that's a great question. So uh, many times um, I, I see hiring managers make the common mistake of 
when they're setting up distributed teams, they tend to hire like it's BAU, like it's business as usual, and uh, tend to follow the same playbook that they were following when they hired anybody else. Uh, the first key hire for a distributed team is really the site head of the person who you're going to anchor that site around. It typically tends to be a generalist, someone that can, if you're opening a dev center, you want someone who's reasonably technical, who can uh, go across engineering product and design and serve as really the center of gravity for that site. Um, and when you're evaluating, especially in a remote setup uh, for a distributed team, uh, evaluating values match is really crucial and it becomes difficult to do that uh, over um, a remote setting. Uh, you wanna hire somebody who uh, is a seasoned manager and um, is able to demonstrate that they can manage relationships in a remote setting because it takes a special skill to do that. You want managers who prioritize outcomes over output. Uh, so they're not uh, really getting worked up about uh, working hours that people put in. Instead, they're able to look at what's the results people are producing instead of trying to make sure they measure people on time. Because when managers don't see their employees, sometimes they react in uh, ways to exert more control rather than, which is unhelpful, rather than focus on the outcomes from their teams. And uh, ultimately, people leave managers, not companies. So it's really crucial when you're hiring a manager on a distributed team that you hire the right person. It's better uh, to err on the side of caution and take your time because this is going to be your most crucial hire. Very interesting, very interesting. Uh, no, in terms of like the kind of like uh, the overall team itself uh, for distributed teams, like what are some factors to look out for from what you've uh, kind of experienced so far? Um, so when you hire a distributed team, in addition to um, individuals that we just spoke about, how, how do you choose the right individuals on a distributed team? Uh, one of the major challenges of a distributed team is really how do you make sure that they feel like they are an integral part of the entire organization. Um, so for instance, at Microsoft, we had a development center in India uh, where we made sure that we instituted full stack teams. So they were responsible for end-to-end uh, end-to-end features or products or scenarios. So it wasn't just, here's an extended set of engineers. There's a few engineers sitting out there in a different geographic location um, and they have to coordinate across oceans for everything. Instead, we made sure that there was end-to-end -end responsibility assigned to the team across product, design, engineering, marketing, sales. So the team feels ownership. And at Atlassian, we have an interesting set of practices that we call the team playbook, which is especially valuable in the context of distributed teams. This is a collection of uh, plays and practices that you can um, easily employ to make sure that your distributed teams are healthy. Uh, one example is uh, we have a play called Team Health Monitor. It's basically a simple list of 12 questions that uh, you collectively answer as a team. Things like, um, how do you rate yourselves on shared purpose? Do you feel like uh, you're seeing regular progress across the team, collective progress? 
uh, what's your ability to overcome impediments? Do you trust uh, the rest of the members of your team? Do you feel like stakeholders are supporting you? Well enough, answering some of these basic questions um, with honesty collectively as a team really helps bring a culture of openness on the team and make sure that the health of the distributed team is really obvious for everybody to understand. So places where uh, we see uh, gaps. So for instance, one of my teams recently said, well, we're not doing so well on uh, shared goals because it's unclear how this particular product we're developing fits into the larger strategic goal for the coming year in 2021. So we sat down and spent time to make sure that we clearly articulate, here's how the company strategy looks for the next year, and here's why this product's important for us to hit these strategic objectives. Um, doing that health monitor regularly really helps uh, to make sure that you know where are gaps uh, in terms of uh, productivity of your teams and how you can help address them. Yeah, those are really, really good points. Now, my next question is actually uh, is a, is a, is a uh, very uh, interesting one in the sense that I know a lot of my listeners are we've been waiting for this. Now, how do you establish the the culture? You know, when it comes to distributed teams, I think you mentioned you talked about you don't have the you know in office experience, no more water cooler in like you know the, in the hallway banter or something like that. But how do you go about establishing that uh, culture when you're distributed? Yeah, that, that's a hard one, isn't it? I typically hear that question a lot because uh, culture is not something that's tangible and uh, discreetly measurable, but you know for sure when things are working well. When someone's not a culture match, it really jars, and you know that you want to fix um, the team's problems when there's a culture mismatch. Um, so I'm going to start with saying it's difficult. It's if you, uh, many of your listeners are wondering about it, uh, it's not a surprise. It's difficult, and that's why it is important to be intentional about uh, actually establishing a set product culture. Uh, at Atlassian, one of our key features of uh, our work culture is openness. Um, and I, I mean, I remember interviewing at Atlassian and I saw this on the culture and I thought, well, it must just be some marketing BS. Every company says that, but how many companies do you do it? <laughs> but as I interviewed, I realized that uh, the people I talked to really lived those values. They were open, honest, vulnerable, and really trust was the default. And that was magical to watch wow. because most you use trust as the default once you establish a relationship where first you trust the person and you're really open with them it fosters a culture of openness then the other person uh, usually wants to reciprocate and be open and honest and further perpetuate that culture of openness doing that across distributed teams can be hard uh, so a few tactics that we employed as we have uh, opened more and more distributed offices uh, around the world is um, because we're Australian, we have very Aussie names for this. Uh, we have uh, a program called the Boomerang Program, um, where we specifically send people that have uh, spent a few years uh, at Atlassian in one office to another office. 
uh, as cultural ambassadors. So they work out of the new office for a few years and they really act as the cultural agents um, that have already experienced a class in culture in one place and are able to seed it in the new office. So they usually do a um, tour of duty and return to the original office. Many of them choose to stay back and uh, permanently move to the new offices. Also, it's a great side benefit of having a distributed uh, company. People can travel from city to city and have the experience of living in different cultures. And even little things like office interiors, ma making sure that it has an Atlassian feel, um, social events, um, doing similar social events across offices, uh, those sets of really small things, uh, but our cultural beacons start mattering a lot. Um, and last but not the least, one thing that I have learned over the years is communications is especially important when you establish a product culture uh, for teams, especially when you're distributed across different time zones, you have very limited synchronous windows. So written comms becomes crucial. So you tend to write down a lot more uh, so that people across different uh, distributed settings can consume and uh, contribute to that canon. Uh, for example, at Atlassian, we use Confluence very heavily. Um, so Confluence is really our internal wiki of sorts. It's how we build a tight-knit community. So it's not just all the work stuff that goes there, but lots of uh, our internal um, blogs go there. Our employees share uh, life milestones. We collectively celebrate grieve when uh, there are uh, losses and really come together as a community. It's impossible to do that across multiple offices without a written uh, written communication culture. Um, just recently, actually as of this morning, one of my teammates um, had uh, COVID. Uh, as she went from US to Australia, she was diagnosed while she was in quarantine. And um, she was taken to a quarantine center in Sydney and she has to now stay there for uh, until she tests negative. And she posted a blog post about that while she was quarantining. And it was heartwarming to see so many Atlassians come together and um, really express their support for her on the wiki. We had folks that went to the quarantine center to drop off a coffee um, just so she could have hot coffee. Um, because uh, she's not allowed visitors, she's allowed uh, gifts and uh, food. Uh, so just building that kind of personal relationship all through a written medium of shared wiki is something really special, but also helps establish shared culture. Yeah, those are really, really good points. And as they say, I guess, uh, you know, culture, you know, eats uh, stra strategy for breakfast, right? So uh, that's that goes a long way, even I guess for distributed teams as well, right? So that is okay. awesome, 100%. Cool. So now I'm curious to know, like you shared a lot with us today, and really appreciate it, Anu. And now I'm curious to know if if there are any resources that you also recommend for our listeners to check out uh, on this topic. Um, yes, definitely, Cyrus. Uh, having uh, worked for a distributed company and also as a company that builds uh, digital collaboration products, we think a lot about this. So Atlassian has a great work-life blog. We call it Work Life, uh, where we discuss a lot 
uh, about uh, remote work, distributed work, our experiences with it, our customers' experiences with it. Uh, so that's a great resource that I would definitely encourage folks to check out. Um, other companies that do a great job of it, Slack has a future of work uh, website where they regularly post uh, blog posts based on how they perceive uh, the future of work to be evolving, what they hear from their customers. And uh, last but not the least, Stripe does a really great uh, quarterly journal called Increment, uh, which is mostly for developers, but uh, they often have some really interesting content about remote work and uh, digital nomads and how uh, digital work is really evolving in the future. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. And then I'm also curious to know, like, how do you how do you help PMs out there? Um, yeah, that's uh, that's a good one. Um, I, I've uh, now been in product management for over 12 years. Um, and um, it's really important to me that uh, we build a community where we pay it forward. Uh, so on my team at Atlassian, I run uh, PM AMAs where um, I invite product leaders worldwide. We've had Steven Sanofsky, Dead Liu, Gokul Rajaram, uh, an all-star speaker list come in and share their insights and uh, lessons they've learned with uh, PMs. Um, I, I do the same and um, do a bunch of AMAs and podcasts at different places, uh, sharing what I have learned in my career. We also run PM craft conferences annually at Atlassian, where we really come together to focus on the craft of product management, where we can step back from the day-to-day -day and hone our workmanship and artistry to be recharged and inspired. Um, I speak at conferences, ProductCon, Women in Product, and uh, mentor and advise PMs from other companies as well. It's uh, great to be part of the product community here in technology. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%. Thank you for all your uh, contributions to the community. Really appreciate it. And I'm also uh, curious to know, like, where, where can our listeners, you know, follow your insights more? I'm not super big on social media. It seems uh, like it's harmful to your mental sanity, especially in uh, 2020. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm big on uh, long form reading, though, and I read about 100 books a year. Wow. Uh, and I, <laughs> yeah, I post reviews of those on Goodreads. I'm a bit of a book nerd. This is uh, Goodreads is really the social network I use the most. It may be an unusual answer uh, that you hear on your podcast. Uh, so listeners that are interested uh, in reading books um, can follow me there. Uh, in general, I find that product management is really about being curious. So my book list can be rather expansive. It covers topics across history of technology, art forms, astrophysics, futuristic science, cosmology, philosophy, uh, all kinds of different topics. And in the spirit of indulging my curiosity, I also took a year off as a sabbatical in 2016 and did something completely different to my day job. I did a string of wildlife conservation projects where I worked to rehabilitate lions in Africa. Wow. I worked <laughs> camera traps for penguins in Antarctica. Um, and I did uh, permaculture farming in New Zealand. That year was amazing. Th that was a great exercise in building perspective, which I think all good product managers need. I find that it makes me a better thinker, better leader, and a better human being in general. Yeah, that's very impressive. Like 100 books per year. That's almost like every book, every, one book per like every four days or so, three or like something like that. And that's 
Crazy. And actually, that goes a long way. That's a, such a great advice, as you mentioned, like because PMs, I guess a lot of uh, folks out there that might think, that, oh, yeah, just PM, you just read a couple of books and blogs about product and that's it. But uh, it really what you mentioned about you reading about different different topics, it really like helps to, you know, grow your perspective as a PM because you are at the end of the day, you're dealing with humans. And then the more you understand your surrounding environment and the humans, the better products you can build. Right. So I think it also not only it's that, you know, uh, you like to you, you like to actually read different books. I think it also contribute a lot to your product craft as well. Indeed, yes, yes, it's a virtuous cycle. That's well put. Very cool, very cool, awesome, Anu. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about how to grow and scale a distributed product team. This was a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Cyrus. That's it for this week's episode, guys. If you enjoyed it, definitely feel free to share with your friends and social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever you can find it. You can leave a five-star review so we can reach more audience. And if you have any suggestions, definitely send me a note at cyrus at productmanagerhub.org. Now you can get all the tips and action items of this episode for free at this uh, link I'm going to give you. It's a bit.ly link. It's bit.ly forward slash pmhub33. Also subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm Cyrus Shirazian. And until next show, stay safe and healthy.